All right. Good morning, everybody. Good to see everybody managed to get here, even though we sprung forward last night. I don't know about any of you guys, but whenever I, I go to bed the night that we spring forward, I'm always nervous that my phone isn't going to automatically do what it's supposed to do. <laughs> and so I'm always thankful uh, when I wake up and it's actually move forward as it's supposed to, but I feel like I need the other clocks in the house that are wrong in order to make sure that it's actually right. Because so. <laughs> it's really bad if I don't set my clock ahead. If I mess that up, it's really awkward. So, um, Well, we are now in our sixth week in our Messages in the Miracle series, where we're looking at Jesus' miracles in the book of John. And this week, we're looking at what I think might be Jesus' strangest miracle of all, which is walking on water. And it's a strange one because it's a miracle that doesn't have an immediately obvious purpose to it. In fact, at first, it might seem a little out of character for Jesus. It might seem a little, uh, little showy for his style. Because when you read the Gospels, you meet a Jesus who... Even though he has this ability to do miraculous things, he seems very purposeful and deliberate when he uses his supernatural power. He never seems to do it frivolously. He doesn't do it carelessly. You know, he never does anything like uh, start flying all of a sudden or, uh, you know, somebody offends him and then he turns them into an animal. He never does anything like that. Um, he's, always, he's always purposeful. And at first, this miracle might seem like an exception to that rule. Uh, but I'm convinced that this is actually not an exception to the rule at all. I think Jesus is actually being very deliberate and very purposeful here, and I, I hope by the end of the morning we can all understand why. Generally, when Jesus does miracles, they have two primary purposes. So the first one is to address some sort of human need, like somebody's sick, or somebody has died, or the wine has run out at a wedding. You know, there's a need, and then Jesus meets it. The second purpose to Jesus's miracles, and I would say that this is actually the primary purpose, is to reveal his identity in some way, to communicate who he is. And there's two aspects of his identity that are revealed through his miracles. So one is that Jesus is the long-awaited Jewish Messiah, uh, the one who was foretold throughout the scriptures. He is the one that the Jews have been waiting for. And Jesus does miracles in such a way that he can communicate to that audience who he is in a way that they would understand. And the second aspect of his identity that he communicates is that he is divine, that he is God. He does miracles that show that he has rights, privileges, and powers that typically belong to God alone. Okay? And this miracle of walking on water actually fulfills both of these purposes. Uh, it meets a human need because the disciples were out in a stormy sea and they were very concerned, they were in distress, and then Jesus miraculously walks on water, comes towards them, and he alleviates their distress. But more so than that, this miracle is an incredible demonstration of Jesus' identity. And it might not be immediately apparent to us how walking on, the wa on water somehow communicates, I am God. But hopefully by the end of this sermon, we'll have a better idea of why that is. So this miracle actually happens immediately after the miracle that we looked at last week, the feeding of the 5,000. So if you want to follow along in your Bible, turn to John 6, uh, starting in verse 14. 
John 6, verse 14. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. So after Jesus has miraculously fed everybody, uh, these people are saying, hey, this is the prophet that was foretold. And they they think, we got to make this guy king. uh, Because it was expected that the prophet who was foretold, the long-awaited Messiah, would be king. And uh, the, the, the Jews were right to think that, that that was who Jesus was. Uh, but what they were wrong about was exactly how Jesus was going to exercise authority, exactly how he was going to serve as their king. So Jesus wasn't about being a political ruler. And so he hightails it out of there. He leaves behind the masses, he leaves behind the disciples, and he goes to a mountain to be by himself, presumably to talk to his father, Jesus really valued prayer. He really valued his alone time. So Jesus is up on the mountain, continuing in verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. Now, apparently the disciples thought that Jesus was eventually going to catch up to them and I'm sure they weren't expecting him to walk on water, so my guess is that they assumed that Jesus was going to get into another boat and catch up to them eventually. And by the time it's gotten dark, uh, Jesus has still not done that. So continuing, a strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed three or three and a half miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were terrified. But he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. So the disciples are out at night on these rough waters, and if we look at Matthew's account of this same story, we actually get some details that really serve to heighten the drama. So I want to say what those details are. The first thing we're told is that the disciples got in the boat before evening came. And evening would have been considered about 6 o'clock. So keep this in mind. The disciples get in the boat around 6 o'clock. And then we're told in Matthew's account that Jesus does not show up walking on the water until the fourth watch of the night. And the fourth watch of the night is the last watch of the night. Uh, They they used to break the night into three-hour chunks of time. So the first watch would be 6 p.m. to 9 p.m., second watch, 9 p.m. to 12 a.m., third watch, 12 a.m. to 3 a.m., and then the fourth watch, 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. So if you do the math there, that means that the disciples get in the boat around 6 p.m., and they don't encounter Jesus until at least 3 a.m. So that's nine hours that they've been in the boat. And you might think, oh, well, they got in the boat, they took a nap, and then they woke up at 3 a.m. Well, we're also told in Matthew's account that the wind was against them from the start of the time they got in the boat. And we're told that they were straining at the oars. So that suggests that they have been straining, paddling, rowing for nine hours. And it's not until nine hours later that Jesus shows up and uh, alleviates the situation. So the disciples, by this point, when Jesus arrives, they have got to be completely exhausted. 
um, totally, totally exhausted. And in that state of exhaustion, um, when things are probably completely overwhelming, in that stormy chaos, they look out and they see Jesus approaching them on those wild waves. Now, how does that moment communicate Jesus's identity? How does this miracle in some way communicate, I am God, in a way that other miracles would not? Well, I think there's actually a definite answer to that question. And I think the answer is really cool. Uh, So I'm excited to share it this morning. But in order to answer it, I think we need to go all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible, uh, to Genesis chapter 1. You might remember that when we did our series in the book of Genesis, uh, we looked at this passage back in October. So we're coming back to it. Uh, This is what the first two verses in the Bible say. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now, that first verse there is pretty self-explanatory, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But what does that second verse mean? That strange, enigmatic, poetic second verse. Uh, Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface, surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So in order to really appreciate this verse, we have to recognize something, which is that in the ancient world, large bodies of water, deep bodies of water, were recognized as a symbol of chaos, disorder, and destruction. Because they're completely untamable. They're completely outside of human control. Uh, In those days, if you felt like you were under attack by evil forces, if you felt like your whole world was a mess, you might say something like, the waters have engulfed me. And when you think about it, that makes a lot of sense because the ocean is a pretty terrifying thing or large bodies of water in general can be a very terrifying thing because they're completely outside of human control. In fact, I remember that one of the scariest moments in my life involved a large body of water that I couldn't control. Uh, I uh, went with a couple friends to a beach in North Carolina, and this was not a public beach with lots of people. There was no lifeguard or anything like that. And uh, the tide was out, and we were able to walk through the water out to this sandbar fairly far out where the waves were breaking over the sandbar. And we played in the waves for a while and had a great time, and then we turned around to go back and realized, oh, you can't walk anymore, because <laughs> the tide had come in quite a bit. And uh, I can swim, you know, but I'm not a great swimmer. And as we were making our way back, uh, my arms were starting to get very tired, and I felt like, despite putting in a lot of effort, like the shore was not getting any closer. And I had this moment where I had the realization, I might not make it back. And I remember that in that moment, the ocean just felt like this completely indifferent, immovable force that did not care whether I lived or died. And about the time when uh, thoughts were running through my head about meeting God face to face earlier than I expected, uh, or how my family would take hearing that I wasn't coming home, um, I felt my big toe scrape the ocean bottom. 
and uh, I felt, you know, tremendously relieved. But it was a close call. You know, I almost was engulfed by the waters. Uh, anyone who lives on the coast knows that water can be a terrifying force. When the flood waters rise, everything can be destroyed. I was uh, in New Orleans about a year after Hurricane Katrina happened, and I remember just being amazed at the amount of destruction that was there even a year later. I mean, it really took them years and years to rebuild from that. I, I imagine that even now, there's probably still uh, effects that they are recovering from there. So for good reason, people in the ancient world saw large bodies of water, saw the sea as a symbol of chaos and disorder and destruction. Uh, and the deeper the sea, the more it symbolized those things. You'll, you'll notice that in this verse it says, darkness was over the surface of the deep. What does that mean? Well, that's just emphasizing the point that the waters were very, very deep. Uh, if waters are deep, then the surface is dark, right? But if the water is shallow, then the light shines through the surface and reflects off the ocean bottom, and uh, it's bright on top. But when darkness is over the surface of the waters, the waters are very deep. So what this verse is describing at the, at the beginning of creation is a chaotic, formless, disordered world. A chaotic, formless, disordered world. But it doesn't stay that way, right? Because God brings form to the formlessness and fullness to the emptiness. Because his spirit is hovering over the waters. Now, what does that mean, that his spirit is hovering over the waters? Well, the word for hovering there actually has the connotation of a mother bird brooding over her eggs. And what this is saying is, just as a mother bird broods over the raw material of her eggs and nurtures them to life, so also the spirit of God brooded over this watery chaos of disorder and nurtured that raw material to life, into order, into beauty through his presence. So, from the very beginning of the Bible, we are told about a God who has power over the forces of chaos and disorder. A God who's able to bring life out of lifelessness, order out of disorder, a God who hovers over the deep watery chaos and turns it into a beautiful and good creation. Okay, with me so far. Uh, and this actually isn't the only place in Scripture that presents us with this idea. Uh, Job 9.8 says, God alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. Treads on the waves of the sea. Now, what does that mean? Well, what that is is a poetic expression of the fact that God alone has power over all of creation even the forces of chaos and disorder, because he treads on the waves of the sea, which represent these forces of chaos and disorder. So you see that. So when Jesus walks on water, here's what I want us to see being communicated by that action. Okay, when Jesus walks on water, he's saying, look, I tread on the waves of the sea. I hover over the waters of the deep which means I am the Lord, I am the creator God, and I have power over all the forces of chaos 
and disorder. You see that. There's nothing arbitrary about this. It's really, it's really cool. Now, recognizing that someone exists who is more powerful than all the forces of chaos and disorder might seem like a really comforting thought, right? It's nice and reassuring to think, oh, somebody has power over all those things. But there's a reoccurring theme throughout Scripture that when people encounter this power, when they realize that there is someone who is greater than all these powers of chaos and disorder, it's terrifying. It's very frightening. In fact, there's another story that takes place before this one in the Gospel of Mark, where once again the disciples are out on the sea and there's a storm and the water is really, really rough. And Jesus is asleep on the boat. He's just relaxing through the whole thing. And the disciples are really, they're freaking out. So they run and they, they wake up Jesus and they say, you know, don't you care whether we drown? And Jesus gets up and he, he says to the wind and the waves, quiet, be still. And they, they obey. And the disciples, ironically, don't then go, woohoo, yay, you're great. <laughs> it says that the disciples are terrified. Because they're like, who is this guy who even the wind and the waves obey him? They're very, they're very frightened by that. They're more frightened after Jesus does that than before. Now, why would that be? Why would they be so terrified? They're terrified because they know that they're in the presence of a power that's beyond anything that they can imagine. You know, anyone who can control the wind and the waves is more impossible to control than the wind and the waves. And so when you see a display of that kind of power, you can't help but think, at least on a subconscious level, I am in the presence of a power so great that unless it is merciful to me, I'm dead. Right? If you ever think about God and you feel fear, that is not an unreasonable response. Because God's, God has more power than any person, any storm, any animal. And we can't control God. And yet, although that fear is not unreasonable, if you are feeling that fear and you're, you're tempted to run in the other direction from God, what you need to hear this morning is Jesus' words in this story. The only words that he says. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Do you realize how remarkable it is that Jesus says that after this incredible display of power? Don't be afraid. Don't, don't be afraid of me. Don't be afraid of the one who treads upon the waves. Don't be afraid of the one who hovers over the waters. Don't, don't be afraid of the one who's more powerful than all the forces of chaos and disorder and destruction. Don't be afraid of the one who's more powerful than the storms and the seas. Don't be the afraid of the one who's so powerful that he can control the uncontrollable. Why not? Why not be afraid? It's crazy not to be afraid, right? Why? Because, Jesus says, it is I. It is I. The one who holds all of this power is a person who can be trusted. Okay, he's not some indifferent force like water or fire or electricity. 
the one who holds all this power is Jesus. It's me, he says. You know me. In that moment where he says, it is I, I hear, I hear something like, I'm not like the ocean that doesn't care whether you live or die. Actually, I'm willing to die so that you might live. I came to this earth so that I might be the bread of life for you. I came so that you might have life and have it to the full. I'm not here to destroy you. I'm here to save you. And I promise I'm not just putting words in Jesus' mouth there. Everything that I just said there is based on something that Jesus says in this same gospel, in the gospel of John. Uh, John 3.17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. John 6.51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. John 10.10, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. John 10.11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The reason that we don't have to be terrified by this power is because God is the one who wields this power, and God looks like Jesus. And through Jesus, we learn that God would much rather redeem us than condemn us. So we shouldn't run from God. We shouldn't try to hide from him. We should actually move toward him. And when we trust in the one who can walk on water, the one who has power over all the forces of chaos and disorder and destruction, we too can have power over those forces. John's account of this miracle is actually really really brief, but Matthew's account includes a great illustration of this idea, this idea that when we trust in the one who has power over the chaos, we too can have power over the chaos. Uh, This is Matthew 14, starting in verse 28. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. Now, this is really incredible, especially if you think of it in light of everything we've talked about so far. Because Peter is doing something here that only God is supposed to be able to do. Right? Remember what Job 9.8 said, God alone treads upon the waves of the sea. And yet here's Peter treading on the waves of the sea, walking on the water. Peter's doing something that demonstrates power over the forces of chaos and disorder. Now, I wouldn't say that this is a contradiction of what Job says, because the power that Peter has to walk on water isn't coming from himself. Right? It's, it's coming from Jesus. And that's actually very clear because of what happens next in the story. But when Peter saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? See, when Peter is focused on Jesus, he's able to hover over the chaos. But as soon as his focus is on the chaos itself, he sinks. So the power over the chaos is not coming from himself, but from his faith in the one who truly holds the power over the chaos. So God alone has the power, but when we trust in him, 
by faith, we experience that power too. In our lives, there are always forces of chaos and disorder at work. Always, right? I mean, I just, I even think about how if you don't clean your house on a regular basis, it's just going to fall into disorder, right? There's always these forces of chaos and disorder. And sometimes those forces become completely overwhelming. Sometimes we can feel like we are out in a small boat in a terrible storm. Financial problems, health concerns, relationship issues, uh, divorce, depression, anxiety, anger, natural disasters, racism, injustice. And just one of those issues, if it's intense enough, can feel like a complete storm of chaos in our lives. Of course, usually we face multiple, multiple issues at the same time. But just one usually is enough to make us feel like we're in that little boat being tossed on the waves. What I want us to see is that when Jesus walks on water, he shows us that he is stronger than any one of those issues. Okay? Any one of those forces of chaos, Jesus is stronger than. And when Peter walks on water, he shows us that when we have faith in Jesus, we also can have power over all of those issues, over all of those forces. But I want us to notice something really, really important. When Jesus and Peter walk on water, the storm hasn't stopped, right? They're still surrounded by the chaos. It's not that the chaos is gone, but they're hovering over it. And what I want us to see is that putting our faith in Jesus doesn't mean that all these sources of chaos and disorder are just immediately going to disappear, right? Putting your faith in Jesus doesn't automatically mean all your financial problems are going to go away. Some people might try to tell you that, but that's, that's not true. Uh, it doesn't mean that immediately all of our health issues are going to be resolved. It doesn't mean that immediately all of our, our broken relationships are going to be fixed. Certainly, it can help to mend all those things, to fix all those things. It can, but our issues aren't guaranteed to be immediately resolved, not in the, the immediate sense. The power that we have through Jesus doesn't necessarily eliminate the chaos, but it gives us power to hover over the chaos. And what that means is that when we're in the midst of that chaos, whatever it might be, financial problems, health issues, whatever, our faith in Jesus keeps us from being overwhelmed by that. It keeps us from being engulfed by the waters. Uh, it, it makes it possible for us to have a peace in the midst of the storm, to transcend the storm, to, to walk on top of it. And the reason that's possible is because when our faith is in Jesus, we know that in the end, things are going to be okay. You know, we're not going to be engulfed by the waters, because through Jesus we know that we have peace with God. Through Jesus we know that we have eternal life. Whatever storm we're in, we know that that storm is temporary. You know, if you've ever found yourself in the midst of a really tough situation and you've been able to laugh about it, I think that's an example of what it looks like to hover over the waters. Our faith puts a little bit of distance 
between us and whatever chaos is going on. We're, we're, we're able to stand back and kind of laugh and be like, well, it's not going to win in the end. And when we're able to believe that Jesus really does have power over the forces of chaos in our lives, not only are we able to hover over the chaos, but we usually start to see order and life and beauty being brought out of the chaos. Because just as the Spirit of God hovered over the waters of creation and nurtured those those waters to life, so also he can bring life out of the chaos in our own lives. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that when you came to earth as a man, you demonstrated uh, your authority and power in such a, a neat way, Lord, as walking on water. And Father, we thank you that you do have power over all those forces of chaos and disorder. And thank, we thank you that we have a hope and a confidence that we can share in that power and in, in, that, in that victory over those forces. Lord, I pray that whatever, uh, whatever problems we may be going through, whatever storms we're facing, uh, that you would empower us to hover over them, Lord. I, I pray that you would help us to not only hover over them, Lord, but to, to be able to, to see beauty coming out of them, Lord. Uh, we pray that you would hover over the chaos in our own lives, brood over it, Lord, and uh, bring beauty and goodness and life out of it. In Jesus' name, amen.